All right, please grab a seat, grab your Bible, go to the book of Esther. How many of you have been overwhelmed by something beside God this week? (laughs) Beside God, don't clear. Oh. How many of you have been overwhelmed even more by God than that? There we go, that's better. All right, hold on, let's start over. Let's try this again. Two weeks off, I don't know what I'm doing, I'm sorry. I'm... um, (laughs) One of those moments, um, there's been a lot of those moments, where I get to look and see what it is that God's put in the minds of other people. Um, I, obviously, I communicate to the guys who are leading, um, and I, I tell them what we're going to preach about, but then when the songs actually come out, it's like, okay, and, and, and I think I get it, and then when I'm actually here, I'm game prepped, and we start singing some of these songs, um, here, let me, let, me, let me do this. Part of the problem that we have today and what is going to be actually the message of the book of Esther is that every day we tend to be more overwhelmed with things that are not God thinking that God is not paying attention. Right? I mean, that, that's, that's me. <laughs> um, I'm thankful there's not a running tape recorder in my car because that's usually where those conversations happen, where it's like, okay. And it starts so polite. God, you're so good. Thanks for the beautiful sunrise. This cool fog. I mean, this morning when I was driving in, there was like this cool fog. And then as our conversation continued, it quickly went to, what are you doing? <laughs> so, so where are you? I mean, obviously, you just haven't responded yet, and you're not involved yet. How arrogant of me. Now, see, the good thing about having a 14-minute drive to church is that usually those conversations begin ugly, and by the time I pull in the parking lot, I'm like, I'm sorry. How arrogant of me to think that God's not involved right now. And that's the story of Esther. I'm going to tell the story of Esther. My attempt this morning is going to be to put the references that I am talking about as I tell the story on the screen. Chances are very good I'm going to mess that up somewhere along the way. I would encourage you that after this, maybe this afternoon as you sit down after lunch or something, just pick up a Bible and read through the entire book of Esther. But Frank, it's like a lot of chapters. It's really not. It's only 10 or 11 chapters, right? I can't remember off the top of my 10. And the 10th one doesn't count because it's only like three verses. You can read through the story because I, I, I think after hearing it, after talking about it, and then going home and reading it, I think it, God will continue to impress upon you the very lesson that he's trying to impress upon all of us in the book of Esther. Um, full disclosure, right up front, I'm going to refer to a fella by his uh, Greek name instead of his uh, uh, Persian name. Hasuerus gets a little hard to say. So instead, we're going to call him Xerxes, because that's what most historians refer to him as. That's, that's the king who is on the throne at the beginning of the book of Esther as we, as we start looking at, at this. So in Esther chapter 1, you've got this guy named Xerxes on the throne. Xerxes is a crazed, tyrannical ruler. I am not recommending this movie by any stretch. However, if you've ever seen the movie 300... That's a picture, the crazy guy with all the earrings and the weird, (laughs) that's Xerxes. And Xerxes is nuts. Xerxes was known for being the guy who just would be in a great mood and then would flip just on a, uh, just all of a sudden he would would turn, he would no longer be in a good mood and he would have whoever was around him killed. 
There was a fella who came to Xerxes. Xerxes' greatest enemy was the Greeks. So the Persians were always fighting the Greeks. He had kind of assimilated his, his daddy's enemy because his daddy, Darius, was defeated by the Greeks. And so now, now he's going after them. And so, so when they would, would fight, they're getting ready to go to battle. And, and, and this fella from this royal fella from the, 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 um, the empire, Persia, came to him and said, sir, I, 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 want to, I want to add my riches to the treasury so that, that it will help us fight our evil enemy, the Greeks. So, so I'm going to give you all the money that I can give you so that, so that you can have great victory. And, and Xerxes heard this man offering this and was, was very impressed. So he, that's okay. Instead of giving me your money, let me reward you for your faithfulness to Persia. A week or two goes by and the fellow returns and says, Oh, great King Xerxes, I'm so thankful for your blessing upon me and how you have rewarded my faithfulness to Persia. And I have a request to make. And the king said, Sure, what is that request? I would request that my oldest son be excused from military duty. And Xerxes figures it out. The fellow was coming trying to bribe him so that his son wouldn't have to go to battle. And Xerxes says, Where is your boy? Bring him to me. And so he brought his boy to Xerxes, and history has it that Xerxes had him cut in half. And then on his way to Greece for his next battle, he marched his armies between the two pieces. See a little cuckoo? That's kind of what I'm talking about. That's the man who's in the background of this story starting in Esther chapter 1. Esther 1 tells us this incredible story about this, this six-month party that's happening. Many historians think that this is the time just before one of the invasions of Greece, and what, what Xerxes has done is brought all his military uh, rulers into the capital city of Susa, and they're planning the military campaign, and they're thinking through all the ins and outs and coming up with their strategy, and he's, he's lavishing his, his gifts upon them and the, the finest of wines and the greatest of foods, and he's trying to take care of them so that, so that they could think clearly, and so this this continues, and, and at the end of the six months, now there's a week-long party for everybody who's in Susa. I mean, he, he, he allowed even the poorest of poor to celebrate with the most wealthy of people in his kingdom. The, the, the rule was there is no compulsion, is what chapter 1, verse 8 says. That means you can drink with reckless abandon. The finest of wines, and, and you could drink from a, from a different golden chalice every time you got a refill. I mean, he was, he was trying to lavish upon these people, in, probably in the effort to say, see, victory is certainly ours. Let's, let's celebrate our victory ahead of time. And then you get to the, the end of that, that week-long period of time, and Xerxes, it says he is having his heart made merry with wine. No good decision gets made after that sentence, in case you're wondering. And Xerxes says, Ben, go get my bride, the beautiful Queen Vashti, and bring her to this party so that all of the princes, all of the men of my kingdom can look upon her incredible beauty because evidently she was quite stunning. And so the men go to Queen Vashti and they say, the, the king has requested you to come into his presence so that he can show off your beauty. He wants you to make sure you wear the crown. And Queen Vashti says, no, I won't do it. The men return and they're like, uh, King Xerxes, we have a problem. Your queen said no. And so King Xerxes gets a little unhappy 
And he says to his wise men, what, is, what, am I, what does the law say I'm supposed to do if the queen refuses to obey my command to come? And, and his, his incredible advisors, um, and this one fella in particular, his name is Memukin. I'm going to make a proposal right now that Memukin was actually a single guy. I'll explain why in just a moment. Mamukin says to King Xerxes, Oh, great majesty, oh, oh, royal highness, this is a terrible travesty that has occurred that Vashti would not obey your command to come. And lest word get out in the kingdom that your wife did not obey you, lest word trickle down to the other wives of the kingdom and they begin to not obey their husbands, he's single. Pass a decree, a law that says when a husband, that, 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 that a Vashti may never come into your presence again, that she is no longer queen, so that when husbands speak, wives listen. Chapter 1, verse 19, it does say that this is what King Xerxes does, Xerxes does, and he writes the law, and now Queen Vashti has been deposed as queen. Another some time passes here, probably, historians tell us, probably this is another failed attempt by Xerxes and the Persian army to attack Greece. So he is back home, and, and we're told in chapter 2 that his anger had diminished, and now instead of being mad at Queen Vashti, quite honestly, he missed her. He was lonely without her. The men who suggested that they pass this law that she be deposed as queen, understandably so, got nervous. Because Xerxes is beginning to bemoan, oh, I miss Vashti. She was so beautiful. And she could cook. So the men are getting nervous and worried, and so they come up with this incredible plan. Let's go throughout all the kingdom and find the most beautiful young ladies, and let's bring them back to the capital city of Susa, and let's pamper them for a year, give them all of the royal facial treatments and the, the rubs and the spices. I switched into grilling somehow there. I'm not sure what just happened. Rubs, spices, a little smoke. Um, <laughs> Sorry, um, but, but we're going to do those things, and, and Haggai, who is the, one of the eunuchs who's over the harem of, of King Xerxes, he, he's going to make sure that he prescribes the right treatments, and then we'll bring them before the king and allow the king to choose the queen who he wants. All right, this should shock nobody. Xerxes thought that was a good idea. Sure, let's bring as many beautiful women into my presence as you possibly can, and I'll pick one of them to be queen. Well, well, it gets a little uncomfortable in this moment. And I'm not going to dwell there, but just there were a lot of women coming before the king night after night. And as they approached their night, they would go to Haggai, who was the eunuch over them, and say, okay, get me prepared. Let me ready. I want a little of this, a little dab. That. They held nothing back. Whatever they wanted to put on, whatever they wanted to treat themselves with before they went to spend their evening with the king, they were allowed to do. And so the women continued to go to Haggai and said, okay, give me a little of that, a little of that, a little powder here. Do my hair nice. Okay, go. And then the king would be like, eh, no, that's all right. Oh, you have a great personality, but no, that's okay. Esther's night came, and she went to Haggai and said, no, 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 no. I have no idea what to request. Haggai, you know the king, and you know me. You tell me what I should do. And he does. And she comes before the king, 
And the king finds her marvelous. The king is overwhelmed with her beauty, her personality, and he makes Esther queen. We'll get to this a little bit later, but I'll just kind of lay this out there for you so you know it's coming. There was something a little different about Esther than all the rest of the women. Fast forward a few years later, and, and Xerxes is sitting on his throne, and he's holding court, and a, and a door flies open, and in marches Haman. Now, you need to understand, as a king, as particularly King Xerxes, had anybody else entered his court without him uh, uh, inviting them, they would have met with certain death. But Haman was allowed to do it because Haman was second in command. Haman marches right into the king's presence, and he is angry. He is mad. He tells the king that there is a a group of people in his kingdom that are different than all the rest of the people. They have their own laws, and it would be in the king's best interest just to to wipe them all out, to be be done with them completely. And so he says, listen, let's let's pass a law. Let's, Let's make a decree that says that we can get rid of those different people And Haman was so mad, he wasn't even asking the king to do anything. He just said, I'll pay for it myself. That's how much I hate these people. Why was Haman so angry? In Esther chapter 3, verse 2, we find that, that, that the king had passed a decree making Haman second in command and had said that everyone, when Haman came into their presence, should bow and treat him as they would treat the king. And so when Haman would walk through the streets or into the courts or into people's homes, everybody would stop what they were doing and they would bow before Haman. Everybody would bow before Haman except for one guy, Mordecai, the Jewish representative. Flat out refused to bow to Haman. Isn't it interesting and human nature that Haman didn't take notice of the hundreds and hundreds of people who bowed before him. He noticed the one who didn't. And so because the Jewish representative was the one that disrespected him, instead of just dealing with Mordecai, he was going to deal with the entire nation and wipe them all out. One fell swoop. So king, these people, they're different, and and they don't follow your laws, and it would be better for the kingdom if we would just wipe them out. And the king, trusting Haman, takes his signet ring off. It's the thing that you would seal the laws with, affirming that it's from the the, the palace, from royalty. And he gave it to Haman and said, you you write the decree yourself and, and take care of this. And so he did. Haman sat, and he composed a decree that said that all of the Jews were to be killed. In fact, he held nothing back. Esther chapter 3, verse 13, it says this, Dispatches were sent by swift messengers into all the provinces of the empire, giving the order that all Jews, young and old, including women and children, must be killed, slaughtered, and annihilated. See, see, he's not pulling any punches, is he? Killed, slaughtered, and annihilated all on a single day. This was scheduled to happen on March 7th of the next year. The, the property of the Jews who were killed, slaughtered, and annihilated would be given to those who killed them. 
getting a little tense in the kingdom, don't you think? So much so that there was great mourning that broke out throughout the land. And, and then Mordecai, the Jewish representative, tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, sackcloth, there we go, covered himself in ashes, and went right up to the gates of the palace. He wouldn't go past the gates because to go past the gates was illegal, particularly in sackcloth and ashes. But he would sit at the, the gate of the palace and he mourned and he moaned and he cried out and he made this, this huge ruckus, so much so that the people came to Esther and said, Mordecai's at the gate, and, and he is flipping out. He, he's, got, he's wearing these weird clothes. We're not sure what it is. And so it says in Esther chapter 4, starting in verse 4, that, that Esther had taken new clothes and sent them down to Mordecai to change into. And Hatak, who was the eunuch who worked for Esther, went down to Mordecai, who's laying there screaming, bemoaning, wailing, weeping, and, and, and offers him the clothes. And then Hatak comes back and says, he won't take them. He, won't, he refuses to put the clothes on. Well, why? What, what is it that, that's wrong? What, what's happened? Haman issued this decree, Queen Esther, that all of the Jews were to be killed, slaughtered, and annihilated. And we are all doomed. Now, I'm guessing that had to have come by surprise to Hatak, who was Persian, carrying a message from Mordecai, the Jewish representative, back to his queen, who was just a little different. As he delivers the message, it says, Mordecai, the Jewish guy, just said, you're going to die too, Queen Esther. See, when Esther was a little girl, her mom and dad died. Her cousin adopted her as his own daughter. Her cousin's name was Mordecai. And Mordecai said, listen, Esther, don't tell anybody you're a Jew. But now that's off the table. Now, now let's hold nothing back. Queen Esther, we, we are all doomed. All of us are going to die. You need to do something. And Queen Esther's response was, wait, hold on a second. We all know that nobody dares enter the presence of the king without being called for. He hasn't called for me for 30 days. What do you expect me to do, Mordecai? And Mordecai says, listen, don't, don't think you're safe, queen, just because you live in the palace. You're still a Jew just like us, so the decree is against you as well. I love verse 14 of chapter 4. I'll put it right up there in front of you. Mordecai says this to Queen Esther. If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will come from another place. You, you and your father's family will perish. But who knows? Maybe you've come to this royal position for such a time as this. Maybe this is why you've been made queen, Esther. And Esther sends word back to Mordecai, okay, I'll do it. I'll go see the king. You have the people pray for me for three days. I'll do it in three days, but have them pray, have them fast, have them, have them pray over me and me walking into the court of the king. Because if I barge into his courtroom and he doesn't lower his scepter, they're going to take my head off. But if I perish... I perish. 
Three days pass. Esther gets dressed. Can you imagine the feeling standing at the side door getting ready to barge into the king's court? Knowing that if the king was in one of his moods, off with her head. She stood at the side door after three days of people praying for her. And she opens the door. And can you imagine in your mind's eye the throne room with Xerxes sitting on the throne and, and Haman, second in command, standing next to him. Soldiers guarding the doors to protect King Xerxes. The side door opens. The queen enters in her full royal garb. I'm guessing a, a bit of a scuffle probably broke out where the soldiers were trying to figure out what to do. Xerxes probably didn't even really notice it, but he did just in time as he took his scepter and he lowered it, saving the queen's life. As the king looked at his queen, who he had not seen in 30 days, he says to her, my queen, something's obviously bothering you. Tell me what I can do for you. Anything at all. Even if it's half of my kingdom, if that's what you need, I will give it to you. Now, now think, think just for a moment. All of this other stuff going on with the decree and, and the certain doom of, 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 the, of the Jews as they're all to be killed and slaughtered and annihilated and, and Queen Esther going to stand up for those Jews and to protect them. And he says, half my kingdom and I'll give it to you. I mean, right then would have been the perfect time. And what does he say? Okay, I would like for you and Haman to come to lunch. What? <laughs> All right. Maybe she wants to do it over lunch. What's going through Haman's mind at that moment? I'd be happy to go to a royal luncheon. And so they go to the royal luncheon and they, they eat their food. They get to the place where they're having dessert. They're finishing off with a, gra a, a, a glass of wine. And, 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 and the king says, okay, my queen, listen, there's something bothering you. Even up to half of my kingdom, whatever you request, I'll do it for you. What can I do for you? I'd like to ask if you and Haman would come to lunch again tomorrow. What? I mean, if you don't know this story, you're looking at that like that is the weirdest thing ever. Why does she want to have lunch tomorrow? What, did she chicken out? We don't know. The king obliges her. Haman is glowing now. My second luncheon with royalty. And he is skipping on his way home. I mean, think about it. I mean, he's already been elevated to the second in command. Now he's, now he's dining with royalty, and he's like, oh, I'm going to go home. And as he's going down the road, people are bowing until he passes Mordecai. And all of the enthusiasm and the excitement that has built up in him is deflated on the spot because that one guy just won't bow. He gets home and he sits down. He gathers his family. He gathers his friends. They ask how his day went. And he says, you're not going to believe this. 
I had lunch with the king and the queen by special invitation. I am wealthy. I have the position that I want. And now I'm privately dining with the king and queen. Life could only be better if that fellow Mordecai was dead. His wife, whose name is Zeresh, and all of his friends are like, wow, you are, you're, you're rolling. I mean, things are going good for you right now. So, so listen, listen, you want Mordecai dead? This is what we was to go, go in the backyard. You know that big, huge tree we have back there? Turn that into a gallows. That thing's going to be like 75 feet tall. You, you turn that into a gallows, and then first thing in the morning, you go to King Xerxes, and you say, King Xerxes, I want to kill Mordecai on the gallows in my backyard. And I mean, if things are going as well as you say they're going, then he will certainly grant your request. Haman hears it, agrees it's a good plan. And before the sun had set, that gallows was built. So the story gets even more interesting now as we get to chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 1, tells us something that, that actually is interesting. On that night, the king couldn't sleep. No, no reason for it. He just couldn't sleep. You ever had that happen? I mean, you're not stressed, you're not angry, you're not frustrated, you're not sick. For some reason, though, you just can't sleep. That was happening to King Xerxes. He's laying in bed, tossing and turning. He can't sleep. And so he calls to his servants. Servants, I don't care if you're sleeping. You ain't anymore. We're just talking to somebody this morning about their new baby. That's pretty much the same way it works. I'm up, so you're up. I can't sleep. So what are they supposed to do? Well, what they do is they go back to the records. They go to the library and they pull out the chronicles of King Xerxes' reign. It was actually a very smart move on the servant's part. Kind of schmoozing them a little bit. They go, oh, let's talk about how wonderful King Xerxes is. And, and the chronicles, honestly, the, the records are boring as dirt, so that should knock them out in seconds. And so the, the servants get the, the, the chronicles and they sit down before the king and, and you just picture it for a minute. Okay, the king can't sleep. Maybe he's dozing off at this moment. Like, uh, and, and you got the servant over here like, and then on March 4th you did this. And he's tailing off a little, getting quiet. And then Xerxes snaps alert. Wait, what was that that you just read? Read that again. What? <laughs> read, read that part you just read. Read that again. Years ago, there was a plot to assassinate King Xerxes. A young man who was sitting at the gate overheard the plot, notified Queen Esther, who notified the king, the assassination attempt was disturbed, and the king lives today. The fellow who overheard the plot and notified Queen Esther, his name is Mordecai. The king, I remember that. I remember that. What is it that we did to reward that Madorky guy anyway? See, you got to understand, the, 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 to reward someone who showed great 
faithfulness to the throne was vital. Because if, if somebody rescued the life of the king, let everybody know about it so that they get to see what the king does to a person who steps up. And then they might be more faithful to the king. So you can see the, the servants reading the Chronicles, and they're like, um, his name's Mordecai, by the way, but that's all right. Um, nothing's been done for him. Nothing's been done for him. And, and the king had to have been appalled. What? That can't happen? That, 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 that cannot be true. Hey, who's that out in the court? See, he couldn't sleep, and now it's morning. He just gets the news that they didn't reward Mordecai for his faithfulness to the throne. And as he looks out the window, he, he sees movement in the court, and he says to his servants who are just answering him, I mean, the timing is impeccable. We've done nothing to reward him. And the king's eyes wander up. Wait, 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 who's that? I think that's Haman. Oh, good. Bring Haman in. Now remember, Haman is coming to the king for what purpose? To ask to be able to hang Mordecai on the gallows he just built. It gets interesting. So here we go. Mordecai comes in. Okay, that was Esther 6.4. Okay, so now uh, Haman, sorry. Haman walks into the, the king's presence, and you kind of get the sense, and I'll, I'll kind of do a little acting here for you. You get the sense that Haman's walking the door like, king, oh king. And the king turns around, he's like, oh, one moment, Haman. I have a question for you. What do you think we should do for a man who I owe so very much to? For a man who I can't even quite put into words, how much how thankful I am for his service to me. What do you think Haman's thinking? It's me. And so, so in a vignette-type scene, you see Haman walk to the window slowly. Oh, my king, if it was me, and you, I wanted to honor someone, this, this is what I think you should do. And you can see him painting the picture in his eyes. I would, I would take the robes of royalty. I would take a crown the king had worn. I would place both upon the man who I wanted to honor. I would take that man. I would place him upon the most noble steed. <laughs> I would take a man from the court, one of the highest ranking officials you have, and I would have that high ranking official lead the steed through the city streets, shouting at the top of his lungs, this is what happens to the man the king wants to honor. Yeah, that's, that's what I think I would do, king. And the king's response is, wow. That was pretty good, Haman. Hey, you know that guy, Madorky? Why don't you do all that stuff you just talked about and, and do that to Madorky? You're a high-ranking official. You lead him through the streets and shout that stuff. And uh, Haman, shout loud. I owe him my life. What a horrible feeling. Now, if there's any credit to be given to Haman... 
He does exactly what the king commands. And after Mordecai has been made much of in the city, he says that Haman covers his, his head and heads home in shame. And he gets home and he just has a very brief interaction with his wife, <laughs> which he probably would have preferred not to have. As he explains to her what just happened and she says, oh, you're in trouble now, man. It's all going to go bad now. I'm just telling you. And as they're having this conversation, the, the, the servants of the king come to get Haman for his lunch with royalties. And so as he's walking back to the palace, he has to be thinking in his mind, well, at least the day's going to get a little better now. At least now I can go and have lunch with the king and the queen and, and, and this will all go away and I can get back to this. And so the, the king and the queen and Haman sit at lunch. They eat. Probably in, in somewhat of silence. I'm guessing Haman's feathers are still a little ruffled. They finish the meal, and the king asks Queen Esther one more time, my queen, I know there's something bothering you. What is it that I can do for you? Even up to half of my kingdom, should you request it, I will give it to you. Esther takes a deep breath. My Lord, I ask that you would give me back my life. Give back the life of my people. For my people and I have been sold to those people who would kill, slaughter, and annihilate us. She quoted Haman's decree word for word. Haman had to have had that feeling of, whoa, 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 whoa. And the king says, who would dare hunt down my queen? And she, in this moment of drama, says, my foe, the evil one, Haman. Haman's having a bad day. <laughs> Just saying. The king hears the queen's accusation, and it's almost like it, it percolates in his mind very quickly. It's like, wait, wait, I recognize those. Wait, the decree, the... And he is so filled with rage, he pushes himself back from the table. It says he leaves his wine where it is, so he must have been pretty ticked. And he heads out the door into the garden just to, I mean, you could picture him with his, his head in his hands, like, what am I going to do? I can't believe this happened. I, I don't understand. And, and now, so that leaves, this is perfect, this leaves Esther and Haman in the room. But they're not alone. It's important to remember that the king's servants would have been standing around the room watching all of this happen. Haman's shaking. He's not sure what to do. My queen, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't know. I knew you were different, but I didn't know. And Esther, I mean, <laughs> forgive me. Esther's got to be like, he walks to her, and Esther's like, oh, nope, I don't think. And she sits on the couch. Now Haman's over here groveling, and he's like, what? And he knows his head's about to be done. His life is over. 
So he runs across the room to where Esther is sitting upon her couch, and he runs and he throws himself at her feet. He grabs onto her legs. My queen, mercy, please, mercy. And at that exact moment, the king walks in and gets the wrong idea. Would you dare molest the queen in my palace? Cover his face. See, the moment you covered someone's face, it meant death. In this moment, the hero of the story speaks up finally. Those servants who were always with the king had to have been aware of all of these pieces and parts of this story and how it was all fitting together and be watching these things and aware of things that that many other people would not be aware of. And in Esther chapter 7, verse 9, the hero, his name is Harbona. Nobody's ever heard of Harbona before. This guy is my hero in this story because this is what he says in Esther 7, verse 9. Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, says this, um, king... There's a gallows, 75 feet high. It's in Haman's backyard. He had made it for Mordecai. You know, the guy who spoke up to help you and saved your life? Just saying. I love that verse. And the king says, fine, hang him on it. They take Haman back to his own home. I put him on the gallows. There's still a lot of work to be done. There's a decree, and in the law of the Persians, once you write a law, you can't unwrite it. So the Jews are still in great danger, and so Esther and Mordecai begin speaking to the king, and he says, here's my ring. You write any law you want to protect yourself and seal it with my ring. And so they, they compose a law that said that, that the Jewish people could actually go on the offensive. They could take the goods of their enemies. They could protect themselves from this battle. It was very interesting that it says somewhere in, in chapter 9 that when the people saw these decrees that there were many people in the kingdom who were trying to become Jewish themselves. Good choice. And in the end, Mordecai is given Haman's job. That's the story of Esther. All of that happened. And as you read that story, you'll notice one thing is missing. The name of God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. But it's fairly obvious he was at work from the fact that Esther was chosen queen out of all those women, that Mordecai was in just the right place to hear the plot against the king, to to Esther keeping quiet at the first meal, which makes no sense to any of us, to Haman, who's, who's building a gallows in his backyard, to Xerxes not being able to sleep that night, to the servants opening up the chronicles to just the right place in history, to Haman being interrupted as he goes to the king even down to Harbona speaking up. What do you need to take away from this story today? Maybe you just need to hear that God keeps his promises. Maybe you just need to hear that no matter how crazy life gets, God reigns. 
The earth may shake and the battles may continue to rage, but God reigns. Maybe you need to to hear the fact that God promised way back in time to Abraham that through his child Isaac, the world would be blessed. Haman wasn't going to be allowed to submarine that. There is no person who could subvert God's promises and his plans. So maybe you just need to be reminded that God keeps his promises. Maybe you need to be reminded and assured that there's hope in God. Not a, oh, I hope in God. No, a confident expectation that, that God, even though it may things appear like, like things are about to go off the rails, God still reigns. This is God's good way. When you look through Scripture, that is the very message of much of Scripture. It's the enemy of God's people. So, so here in Esther, the enemy of God's people was certain that he had won. Haman, the moment he walked into the palace that morning, was like, my life is good and they're all done. And yet defeat came out of seemingly nowhere. Should cause us to fast forward about 500 years, shouldn't it? Because that's exactly what happened to Satan. He's in the tomb. It's all over. I have finally conquered God. And yet, (laughs) Satan's sure victory is turned into his ultimate defeat as Jesus comes out of that tomb. See, that's the source of our hope. There is one name who is above all, and he's above all graves, he's above all tombs, he's above all thrones, and he's above all enemies. You may not hear him and you may not feel him. You may not see him. You may not even be able to sense him right now in your life. But if you belong to him through Jesus Christ, then you're in his capable arms of love and he's accomplishing his perfect will. Rest in that. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you have given us such powerful reminders of your goodness. Thank you for our conquering hero, Jesus. Thank you that even even this story reminds us of the victory that he had over sin and death and the grave and the hope that we can have in him because of that final victory. Lord, I know there are people sitting in this room who this week have felt that that you're just absent, that you're not working. Even my conversation with you this morning, God, I, (laughs) again, I'm sorry because I am so selfish and arrogant that I think if I can't clearly see your finger, if I can't clearly see your hand, if I can't clearly hear your voice, then you mustn't be doing anything. And God, that is the furthest thing from the truth. You are active. Lord, may we rest in your very capable arms of love, remembering that our hope is built on a foundation that has been given to us when we understand what it is that Jesus Christ did for us. It's in his good name I pray. Amen.